Tomorrow night, we'll have a special report on the smoke engulfing the tri-state area as Code Red emergency has been issued across New York City. Public health officials are once again warning New Yorkers to mask up and limit their time outdoors. Tune in tomorrow night for everything you need to know on the orange haze covering our city. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming as Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. Camelot is back. Broadway royalty since it first appeared in 1960, the classic musical has returned, this time to the Lincoln Center Theater, heralded as a more modern reimagining of the tale. Written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Broadway veteran Bartlett Shear, the show, called A Royal Delight by Critics, features the familiar breathtaking score together with extraordinary performances by a cast of 27 and a live 30-piece orchestra, all contributing to five recent Tony nominations, including Best Revival of a Musical. Here's a preview. This is the time of King Arthur. And forgiveness is not weakness. And justice is not revenge. This is the time of King Arthur. And we reach for the stars. By God, Excalibur, I will be a king. And we will live through this. Thank you and I. And we are delighted to be joined by the three stars of the show, Tony Award winner Andrew Burnap, who plays King Arthur, Grammy Award winner and Tony nominee Philippa Sue, who plays Guinevere, and Tony nominee Jordan Donica, portraying Lancelot. Welcome to all of you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Let me start off this conversation with a compliment. My wife and I saw the show. We have in the past, other than the 1961st show seen every version of Camelot film and stage and I will tell you this one was the most enjoyable uh, <laughs> and and I certainly got that sense from everybody else around us so I think it's a good way to start a, a conversation here <laughs> thank me, you very much good let me ask you all this is a bigger picture question and then bigger picture question then we'll get to some of the details here but I saw that that um Bartlett chair had said revivals come back when we need the most as a society. And I was struck by that. And I'm wondering, and, and Philippo, maybe I'll ask you first, what do you think it is about this show and this revival that we as a society now need, or at least can appreciate? Well, I think it's asking a couple of really big questions. One being, is humanity innately good or is humanity innately bad. And we can hold both of those questions at the same time to be true. Because I think there is a level of um, 
despair and questioning that we're all experiencing right now, especially coming out of a pandemic, coming out of a, a, basically a, a huge cultural revelation. Um, and we're seeking some answers to the questions that we have. Um, but I also think this show at the same time presents this idea of hope um, and that, you know, in all of our questions and seeking out what makes us good or bad as humans, ultimately there is hope and that, that hope lies in younger generations, that hope lies in future. Um, and just for me personally, I think it strikes a chord in, in, in the society that we live in and democracy and how does democracy work and how can we all participate in democracy to make it work. Let me let me ask you each about your roles, and I'm going to come back to that notion and some of the things, Philip, that you just said now and how it applies to each of you. But um, these are it's an iconic show with iconic roles in them. And and Andrew, I'm I'm wondering, is it daunting for an actor, and if it is, maybe to what degree, to to create a role now that is an iconic role in an iconic production that is that has lasted for decades as an actor how is that uh short answer is yes uh it's extremely daunting it's intimidating but it's also such a unique and sort of dreamlike opportunity in the sense that you get to put your stamp uh on this as you said iconic character I mean, the two men who are most closely associated with this are two of the greatest actors ever to have graced the earth. So when you think about it in that sense, it makes you want to go under the covers and never come back out. But when you are given an opportunity that, you know, Aaron Sorkin writes uh, a slightly new characterization with a new idea and a new world, um, it's sort of like a, a, a pinch me moment that I get to put my name alongside these, these great, great icons. And um, so thinking of it moment to moment in the playing of it, that's where the joy and the beauty and the, the, the sort of dream uh, lies. If, if you think about it as a, as a larger picture of, oh, I have to go up against these uh, great men, then it then it's sort of like you're kind of dead in the water. But if you think about it as an addition to the already iconic um, thing that lays before us, then it's, uh, you know, it's such a golden opportunity. And, and Jordan, to you, uh, Lancelot, again, his own iconic figure, Robert Goulet, originally mm -hmm. on, on broad, a, a, a broad, indeed a Broadway legend. I also want to mention to you that, I, that my wife and I were one of, I'm sure, thousands of people who have seen the show who danced to If Ever I Would Leave You in mm. our wedding. That was 50 years ago, so it was pretty prophetic. It worked out felt well for us here. But, <laughs> Congratulations. But, thank That's you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. But but talk <laughs> about that. Similar to what Andrew said about, you know, Lancelot is a, this legendary character. And and how do you go about making making you, him, him, you? Um, I had the luxury of, of hearing anything I really knew about Camelot growing up came from like stories from family or friends who either, you know, listened to the album or had seen a touring production of the show. Um, and like, I, I always heard how wonderful, uh, how much of a fantasy it was. And, uh, but I, I myself, outside of seeing The Sword and the Stone and Disney had really no relationship to the material uh, and, you know, spam a lot. So <laughs> I didn't, I, I, uh, I had done a, a gala performance of it 
four years ago, and that was with the original script. And so that was actually my introduction to um, the world of Camelot really proper. And uh, so I've just had fun exploring the romance the uh, and all the things that Philippa has been talk uh, talked about as well. Um, uh, and I echo Andrew's sentiments, you know, you can't really think about the fact that Robert Goulet made these songs famous when he made them famous because you know, we're singing them for a new generation. We actually just did a student matinee yesterday. So, you know, we had fresh ears of kids who had never really seen Camelot, didn't really know the story, didn't know it was going to happen. And it was one of the most electric experiences. And like Andrew said, you just kind of live in those moments instead and let that be your guide. Let the relationship that we develop as a cast and as a crew um, help us and hopefully, hopefully develop that relationship with the audience as well. Um, through the story and and you just learn so much and uh, I've just kind of been riding that wave. Uh, what a great opportunity to bring it to children and and to introduce yeah. Philippa, as you said, those concepts of equity and democracy and hope, you know, in in conjunction with despair, um, to get young children to see it. And Philippa, let me talk with you about about Guinevere. Guinevere again. We, we I've used the word iconic and way too often here, but it happens to be descriptive and appropriately here. Um, I I did a little research on this. There have been dozens that I found of doctoral dissertations written about the character of Guinevere. Your Guinevere, though, is a little bit different. And intentionally a little bit different here. Talk about some of the differences in, in the Guinevere that you portray. Well, um, I like to think that based on, you know, the time that we're living in and the opportunities that I have, because, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of amazing women who have created incredible characters before me that we're living in a time where this is maybe the most fully fleshed out version of her that we have ever seen just because we're more evolved. And I think, you know, to your point about this, these iconic roles and these iconic characters, something that may seem daunting to most people, but I actually find quite comforting is that these characters are, not only exist from Camelot the musical, uh, the original musical that was done in the 60s, but this is a, a story and a canon of stories that has existed for centuries. And it's a very old story and it has deep roots and it has many different versions and alternate ways of telling this story. You know, there's some general through lines that, that continue to be there, but I think that, you know, that only gave me permission to put my own stamp on it and to know and to be humbled uh, by the fact that this is just a small notch in the, the, the canon of this story that we are coming forth and telling and trying to serve our society in some way with this story, with these ideas. And I'll, I'll toss out a line that people, when they go see it, will recognize talking about your partnership um, with Guinevere and, and Arthur. And one of the things, and, and this is both Andrew and Jordan here, you guys do a great sword fight. Um, on stage. Now, we're kind of used to, you know, if you go to grammar school or high school productions, a sword fight is two people with things going bang, 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 bang. You guys, this looks realistic. I mean, you're, you're, there's some good moves, some athletic moves going on here. Tell me about putting that together and, and how you go about creating that. So um, BH, who is our incredible uh, fight choreographer, who has been doing this for uh, longer than I think any of us have been alive, um, he is a 
true storyteller. So our first day of fight uh, rehearsal was um, us all talking about what story do we want to tell with the fight. It's not just, to your point, a couple of guys banging swords around. It's actually two people who have a point of view and an intention in what they are doing in this fight. And so um, that was a, a beautiful way to come about uh, fighting because it gives you uh, a larger sense of purpose. It's not just a, a, a sword fight. It is a story in and of itself. So we started with fingers and saying, I'm going here and I'm going there because of this, because I want this. Uh, and then graduating to bamboo sticks and then finally graduating to swords, which nine-year-old Andrew, so, and I'm sure nine-year-old Jordan as well, sort of freaked out the day that we finally got swords. It's like, you know, the, the, the day you get a lightsaber in your hand as a Star Wars nerd. It's just so much fun to be able to do. Yeah, yeah, I, I I can recall when we did, and I, I feel like I said this, and maybe if I didn't, I definitely thought it that like, wow, like I've been playing swords my whole life, but I finally have someone to play it with. Yeah. You know, like, like it was it was because I I had this uh, old plastic katana sword that I I had gotten from like like a, a state fair one year when I was a little boy, and I would just always wield that thing. So to be able to do it now for a living yeah. is is so fun, and and that's part of BH's method too. He's like always maintain the state of play, and when that state of play goes away, that's when things get like actually dangerous, and and you can hurt yourself and those around you. And so in BH, like, like Andrew said, he he considers himself a fight director. So the way he approaches it is is as a scene, and ultimately that helps in the growth of the character so that we don't just get to a, a part of the show that's like, Oh, this is an awesome sword fight. That was cool. Moving on. It's like, what, no, what, what can we learn about these, these two and not just these two, but these three, um, through this fight. So finding the moments of connection and always maintaining contact with everyone in the scene, uh, has been great for the, the whole ensemble because the fight itself doesn't really work if we don't have a great ensemble yeah. reacting to it and helping us. So, uh, we all help, as BH always says, like make each other look good. So like we we all help. It's a, it's a cyclical thing. Right. Well, look, we we could talk forever. As I said to you, this is just absolutely one of our favorite shows ever. You all are spectacular in it. I mentioned a thirty piece live orchestra, which is such a delight um in in this day and in any day and age actually so um you know what we hope what we ask for what we hope for in our theater is to be both entertained and for it to make us think and, and i think this version does all of those things and you all should be congratulated for the work you do so thank you so much for spending some time with us good luck as this continues to run and and hopefully we'll look forward to talking with all of you sometime down the road be well now thank you thank yeah. you thank you so much New York City is home to a number of museums celebrating our rich artistic and cultural history. But until now, there has never been a permanent museum solely dedicated to honoring what is perhaps New York's greatest artistic contribution, the plays and musicals of Broadway. Well, after years of preparation, we can finally say that is no longer the case because the brand new Museum of Broadway is officially open. Located in the heart of Manhattan's theater district, the 26,000-square-foot museum covers hundreds of years of Broadway's history and showcases props and costumes and other memorabilia from countless Broadway shows. The museum, created in partnership with artists and designers from the theater community itself, 
also features several permanent exhibits, including one dedicated to the behind-the-scenes crews that are so essential to putting together the shows that we all love. And we are thrilled now to be joined to talk more about the Broadway Museum with the museum's co-founders, Diane Nicoletti and Julie Boardman. Welcome to both of you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for so much for having us. So the first question is this, and I'll, I'll come to you first, Julie, and then Diane, you jump in. And, and that is, as most f- first questions are, um, why the museum and why now? Really, really great question. Um, yeah, there's never been a museum dedicated to Broadway and the history of Broadway is so rich. And is you know, the theater in New York has been around since the 1700s. So it's kind of mind blowing that it didn't exist before. We feel really fortunate and and um, are very grateful to be the ones who are making it happen. And, you know, we found this incredible space in the middle of Times Square um, where we can celebrate Broadway and its history. So, yeah. Diana, uh, same question to you. And I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the genesis of, of an idea, how it springs out, where it, where it comes from, when people say, hey, that's a good idea. How about for the two of you? Do you remember when you said, whoa, whoa, that's something we should be doing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was it was all Julie's idea. It was from a conversation that she had with a friend and we have been friends for over 20 years. And she was like, why is there not a museum of Broadway? We were just talking about that the other day. And I just paused for a minute I was like, you're right. There isn't one. How does one not exist? And then we started just brainstorming on if we were to create one, what we would do and how we would go about it. And then that was sort of the impetus for the idea. And then, you know, five years later, here we are. We talk about five years later, but of course, there was a chunk of time in the midst of that five years where where everything was was thrust into disarray in our lives. And I suspect also the development of the the museum. Tell us about that and, and the impact that COVID had on getting this up and running. Julie? Yeah, we so as Diane said, about five years ago, started kind of brainstorming and whiteboarding the concept and you know, what was a story we wanted to tell and figuring out kind of how it would work. And um, and so we were working on all of that and then starting to, you know, fundraise to put it all together. Um, and then COVID happened. Um, it, you know, was hard at first because we were looking for a space and you couldn't actually go to see spaces. Like mm-hmm. everything was closed. Um, it gave us some time to really continue to like hone and work on, you know, the timelines with Ben West, who's our, you know, timeline curator and resident historian and, you know, uh, the design. And we worked a lot um, over Zoom, luckily, during that time. And then as soon as we could, we got out and started looking at spaces. And actually, the space that we're in, um, it used to be an Irish bar that unfortunately didn't make it through COVID. They had to shut their doors. Um and I guess when one door closes, another opens. And we were really fortunate to find the space. Um, it, As you said, it's 26,000 square feet. It's right off of Times Square on 45th Street. We're next door to the oldest continuously operating theater, um, which is a really nice place to be. So a bit of a silver lining, if you will, from, from COVID that we were able to find the space, secure it, sign the lease and get going. How important was it, Diane, I'll ask you this, how important was it, or was it essential in the beginning for this space to be located 
in the midst of the heart of Broadway and the heart of theater, if you would? Oh, I mean, it was extremely important. Um, it was one of the greatest challenges, too, because we were limited, obviously, into this sort of geographic space, which we felt was very important to be there. Um, and so it took a little longer. We had to get creative because there weren't as many spaces that had the square footage that we needed. Um, and also the layout, because we did have the concept prior to finding the actual space, which was important. Look, let me talk about, and I mentioned this in the beginning, I, I want to give our viewers a sense of, of some of what's there, right? just to, to draw them in and quite literally get them there, as a matter of fact. But, and I mentioned the introduction, there, there are a number of permanent exhibits, and then there'll be other exhibits that are coming in. Um, the the uh, different types of permanent exhibits, I mentioned one in the very beginning, which is how, how does a production get made? You know, we, we all see what's on the stage, but as you know, and uh, you've both been involved in this, there are years of work that goes involved before it finally becomes that. Why, Julie? Why then was it so important, do you think, to say, we need a permanent exhibit that says, this is how this thing gets made? Yeah, one of the the things as we were brainstorming again, what, what it could be in the story, um, it was also what we wished existed when we were little and coming to New York. Um, I grew up a huge fan of, of Broadway. I started performing when I was five. We came to New York to see my first Broadway show when I was 10. Um, you know, so I've been a fan um, for a very long time and had something like this existed when I first came to New York, you know, maybe the trajectory of my, you know, maybe my path would have been a little bit different. Um, I was performing and it took me a long time to learn about all the rules backstage and what, you know, I'm on the producing end for Broadway, but I didn't even know that was a thing when I was growing up. Um, I just thought you had to be the actor. So this room, you know, uh, David Rockwell has designed the, the room and it's meant to show you kind of all these different, you know, jobs that exist in Broadway that you may not have known. Um, like you said, you sit in the audience and you see the final product, but you don't know the seven, 10 years sometimes that it takes to develop a show to get it to Broadway and kind of all the stages. So we wanted to like um, kind of go behind the scenes and, and show a bit of that um, magic and hopefully expose people to something they didn't know about Broadway. And, and Diane, tell me a couple of the other, give me a quick glimpse of some of the other permanent exhibits that are there. Sure. Um, well, we took the timeline of Broadway. And so each of the different shows that are highlighted on the exhibit or with the exhibits um, are like Phantom of the Opera, where we have a crystal chandelier installation made of close to 14,000, the number of performances that uh, Phantom of the Opera has run or will run once it eventually closes in the spring, um, made out of crystals. So if you look at it one way, you know, you see this lovely crystal installation, but then if you turn just right, you actually see the mask come through. So it's original artwork that pays homage to Phantom of the Opera. Um, we have, you go through like the cornfields in Oklahoma, you get to experience um, cool and America recreated by uh, dancers and the choreography for West Side Story. So each room has its own little unique experience that really sort of brings it to life in addition to seeing photos and artifacts and costumes as well. So it it really immerses you into these different exhibits and, and shows. Let me ask you about that. You mentioned photos and artifacts and costumes, and I had seen more than a thousand of them are incorporated into the museum. And, and the first question I had is, 
where did they come from? I mean, where did you, Julie, where did you find them all? Um, yeah, we have an incredible team of curators that we were working with and a lot um, came from just relationships. Um, the people who are part of the museum or part of the Broadway community. Um, and so it's just conversations and kind of uncovering what still exists. Not everything was kept from the past. So um, there are a couple um, key places we worked with like Goodspeed Opera House. They have a really wonderful collection of costumes, the TDF costume collection. Um, the public theater has done an incredible job of keeping like the entire, basically like from a chorus line when it closed, they put away um, one of every costume from the lines, you know, and they have, we uncovered these incredible costumes that they have. We have Meryl Streep's costume from when she made her Broadway debut. We have something that Kevin Klein and Estelle Parsons and these people wore on stage that it, it's just really wonderful for people to get to see up close um, and that you get to see, um, you know, the hand beating that goes into making these costumes. It's really incredible. Our team of curators, has done an extraordinary job of of bringing it all together and some just happened i was walking down the street and i ran into my friend who's the producer of hades town and andre de shields was just leaving and so i was like hey could we <laughs> could we have his costume to put on display and she's like sure so you know some happen kind of organically like that as well yeah do you, do you guys have favorites diana i'll ask you first of, of of the 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 exhibits the things the artifacts do you have some, and maybe this is like asking a, a, a mother, do you have a favorite child um, to some extent, but I'm still going to ask you, do you have some favorites in the collection? I think there are some that have really interesting stories behind them. So there's like a part of that that makes it extra interesting. Um, Siegfeld Follies, Disney, um, we have these on loan where they're from like the early 1900s. So just it's so impressive that they were preserved and they still exist because there's many costumes anymore that that don't. So it's it's great that we have original Ziegfeld Follies costumes that we have on display that are just beautiful. And that's probably one of my favorites. Yeah. It's so wonderful. Again, we're so thrilled that Broadway is is back um, well, well, we'll have you back to talk about some other issues sometime about that. But we're thrilled Broadway is back. We are absolutely thrilled. The Museum of Broadway is up and running. So folks out there, if you're interested, get there as soon as you can. I'm sure you will love everything that's available. Um, Julie, Diane, thank you so much, both of you, for spending some time with us and for the work you did putting this together. A job very well done. Look forward to talking with you again soon. You both be well now. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.